Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, and I'm your host. And it's the first edition of 2021 for the show. And so I'm glad to be in 2021, I believe. But we're just getting started. The beginning of 2020 looked okay. And then it wasn't. And then it wasn't again for the rest of the year. So here we are at the beginning of 2021. Hopes are high, as they always are at the beginning of any year. But this year, I think particularly so, because we want so badly to be done with the old year. We're uh, struggling a little bit. I think everybody's struggling with what to do. And we're looking at more lockdowns. We're looking at this getting more difficult before it gets easier. And so how do we prepare ourselves for another round of that and then what's that going to mean what's it going to look like for the next several months and I don't think any of us know and we've got so much uncertainty and it feels like all we've lived with is uncertainty for a long long time and um, it was in some ways a quick year because you just want to overlook it and say well that really didn't happen but Hopefully this year really will be a better year. Hopefully we're moving in the right direction, um, but not in the short term, I don't believe. So here we are, and we've had not a terribly busy week. We had dinner with a uh, friend on Monday night who is so generous and so wonderful. She's incredibly talented. She made a quilt for us and gave it to us as a belated Christmas present because she had covid and so we had to wait and postpone our getting together with her. And so we had a wonderful Monday night. And then yesterday we had a couple of other friends over for lunch and just had a, a wonderful, wonderful afternoon together. It was a blessed time, and I'm grateful for that. So here we are. We're coming into 2021. And so what we're looking at today, this is the what in the Anglican world, uh, this is the last Sunday of Christmas, actually. So we have two Sundays after Christmas, and then beginning on the 6th, which is Tuesday, I believe, Tuesday or Wednesday, that's Epiphany. And the season of Epiphany starts that day. It's the Epiphany is the celebration of the coming of the wise men to see the child in the manger. And so we'll change seasons beginning uh, on the 6th. So we're getting close to something new. and But we don't want to move too quickly and move to Epiphany before Christmas is over. And so um, we've, we've got some issues to deal with today. We've got some things to think about. And a lot of what we're thinking about is homecoming. And what does it look like to, to come home? And Jesus, Jesus made it possible for us to come home, made it possible to be reunited with the one in whose image we're created uh, in not just in a, a, a distant way, but as sons and daughters. And those are huge statements to make, but, but what does it mean? And, and do we embrace that spirit of adoption that cries, Abba, Father, and, and do we walk then as children of that? We, Suzanne and I just watched, I don't know why, you know, sometimes a movie or whatever will float in your head and you just want to watch it. And so we watched an old movie uh, and it was called Arthur. It was Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli and John Gielgud. And it's interesting what that theme of sonship looks like. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the, the passage from Galatians where Paul talks about the law being a pedagogue to lead us until he came. And we can walk freely as children of God. And so there's a scene later, late in the movie where Gilgood's character Hobson, who has been the pedagogue for 
Dudley Moore's character, Arthur, uh, he's he, Hobson, John Gielgud, is dying, and he's talking to him, to Arthur, about not being afraid of death. And, he's, and Arthur says, are you going to now teach me even how to die? He said, I have nothing left to teach you, Arthur. You're all grown up. You're a good son. And I told Suzanne, that's, that's exactly what it looks like. That's exactly the picture Paul's trying to paint in Galatians. Now, the, the Gilgood's character who's taught him everything, who is a pedagogue, has, is now dying. And he is affirming Arthur as having been all grown up with nothing left to teach him, and he's a good son. And so he's releasing him to walk in to, to the idea of what it means to be a son. And much of what um, we're going to talk about today is what does it look like and feel like to come home. And it looks like celebration. It looks like joy. It looks like dancing. So let's talk about that a little bit. So we've got Psalm 84, the first eight verses of that psalm. And this is, How dear to me is your dwelling, O Lord of hosts. My soul has a desire and a longing for the courts of God, my f- heart and flesh rejoice in the living God. The sparrow has found her a house, and the swallow a nest where she may lay her young. By the side of your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. A, what a poignant picture that is. And you can just see um, the psalmist writing that and seeing the sparrow in, in, and the swallow there in the courts of the temple building their nest. You know, there's so many places where we can see that same picture, but to see those in the temple would, is something that we would typically overlook, right? We wouldn't even notice those things, but there's, a, there's something that, that the psalmist sees here that, that just feels so wonderful to see those two things, God's creatures, Nesting there by the side of the altars of God. Happy are those who dwell in your house. They will always be praising you. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on the pilgrim's way. And that, there's this sort of this uh, Canterbury Tales sort of picture of that, but that, that's not what it looks like in this instant because on the pilgrim's way is for the festivals that they're required to come to Jerusalem and, att- and attend during their lives, you, you could see this huge band of people gathering from all the corners of the land and coming into Jerusalem. And we see that most notably in the last part of the Gospels when we see Jesus coming triumphantly into the town, the people singing and screaming and shouting and praising him along the way. And so that's the pilgrim's way as those who are coming to Jerusalem for the festivals and the joy that they take in knowing that the land is theirs and coming into that place to come to the house of God. And then he says, those who go through the desolate valley will find it a place of springs for the early rains have covered it with pools of water. They will climb from height to height and the God of gods will reveal himself in Zion. Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Hearken, O God of Jacob, behold our defender, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. And in situ there, the anointed refers to the king. In our situation, after Jesus, we know that the one who is the anointed is the one who is from all time and exists beyond all time. It's Jesus. And so... We do ask that he looks upon the face of his anointed, and when he looks upon him, 
he loves us in Jesus. And so we should look upon the face of the anointed as well with great joy and with love. So in Jeremiah, the Old Testament lesson, Jeremiah is speaking to an exiled people, but he's been given a word from the Lord. He's been given the word that they will indeed return. And Jeremiah so believes that God said that to him, that he bought property in Jerusalem as they were leaving the land, as they were going into exile. Jeremiah bought that land for himself as a pledge to the people and a sign of his faith and belief in the word of the Lord that, that they would indeed return to that place, even though the exile was going to be long and bitter. But he's told here to speak to the people again and to give them comfort and to give them hope. And it says, For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and lame, the pregnant woman and she who's in labor together. A great company they shall return here with weeping, they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. It's a powerful image to see that group of people on the Pilgrim's Way coming back to Jerusalem, the land that God has given them, His land, and he, He's leading them as a father. And you can hear that in the in that the words sort of of the twenty third Psalm as well about I'll make them walk by brooks of water, so that along the way they don't get thirsty. There's there's water for them along the way, and in, in, in a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I'm a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And so what he's saying is is that that I'm going to take them back in such a way that it'll it will the journey back will be blessed even as they come. And then Jeremiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. So he's not just speaking to the people of Israel, he's speaking to, to those who have taken them into exile. And say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the house height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young men rejo women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I'll feast upon the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. It's always been God's plan for us from the beginning that we would be satisfied with His goodness. And that's His intention now. It's His intention for all time and from all time. And do we find satisfaction in the goodness of God. And the goodness of God can be seen in so many different ways, primarily in Jesus. And then the, the, our praise and our recognition of God's goodness flows down from that height, the height of the sacrifice of His only Son for our sake and for us to have everlasting life. And so our, our praise, our satisfaction in His goodness begins with the ultimate act 
and sign of his goodness, and that's the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the hope of his coming again in glory. And so we, we begin to praise him from that place, and our praises should always begin there. We should praise him primarily for that great act of love by which he took on flesh and came among us and was crucified under Pontius Pilate was dead and buried and rose again on the third day. That's where our praise begins. And in the uh, church when I was pastoring, we changed, didn't change the liturgy exactly, but I realized one day that, that the creed actually felt like kind of a, a lull in the service. And so we began to sing after that, sing praises to God for what he had done as soon as we finished the creed because it did it feel like a low point it felt like that was not a time when we were praising him and and realized that that's something that is the ultimate act of praise is to confess what God's done for us and not just confess what he's done but confess with faith what he has done with different new eyes enlivened by the Holy Spirit not just to know those things but to believe their meaning as well. Because the fact that Jesus was crucified, died, buried, and rose again on the third day has a meaning beyond just that. It has a meaning for us. It's our own promise of salvation because we believe in him. We will be resurrected just as he was resurrected and resurrected to eternal life. So praise begins there, and then we begin to be satisfied with everything else as though it were God's goodness. Just as I sit here now looking out the window, and, and we've, we've had a strange thing happen over the last little bit, maybe the last, what, 10 days or something like that, I think. Um, there's a six-point buck that started hanging out in the yard all the time. I mean, he's here every single day, and so we started to, to get some deer corn put it out and feed him. Beautiful, beautiful animal. So we, we've been looking for him every day. And, and it's just a real blessing to have, have him come so close. I mean, he'll come within a couple of feet of us, and he'll just stay there while we talk to him. And then a couple of days ago, he decided, hey, I got a buddy that I'd like to bring with me, and it's another six-point buck, and he's bringing him. And they're eating here every single day. And it's just, I see that as a blessing. It's just something that delights me to see him come down here and, and hang out. And, and as I look out the window, I see the beauty of God's creation around us, even now in the wintertime when so many uh, of our trees have no leaves on them, but they're still green growth because they're hemlocks and, and all kinds of other um, pines and things that, that we can look at. There's spruce in front of me as I look out. And it, so it's still beautiful. There's still a glory in God's creation, knowing that ultimately this will all be back in flower, bloom, and leaf. And so there's a, there's a time when, when we're in a place of, of waiting for that new growth to come. And so I think we've all been in that time of waiting now for almost a year, and, and we're looking forward to that. But it doesn't mean we can't and shouldn't rejoice in God's goodness every single day. And, and if we want to get out of whatever pit we may be in over all the mess that we've had to put up with for the last almost year, then that's the way to do it, frankly, is to, to immerse yourself in the worship of God and to be satisfied with His goodness. 
Don't be saying, well, I'm postponing everything else in my life, and I'm postponing joy. I'm postponing uh, everything, and I'm, I'm kind of holding it all in abeyance. No, rejoice today and be satisfied in the goodness of God. But the only way we can do that is to immerse ourselves in the worship of God's goodness and all the goodness that we have from him that can include the friends that we hung out with this week and spent time with. It can include our family. It can include the, the ability to work, the, the ability for our bodies to work well and to exercise and to get out in nature and to do whatever it is you do for exercise. But, but it's essential that we worship God for his goodness and giving us the bodies that we have and taking care of the bodies that we have is equally essential. So the way that we are satisfied in his goodness is to luxuriate in it and, and, and be pleased with these bodies that he's given us and what they can do and to maximize the potential of those. And so it's always the satisfaction with his goodness is to celebrate and recognize his goodness is where we begin with all that. And so Paul does exactly that when he's writing in this passage to the Ephesians from um, the first chapter of Ephesians, which may be the most glorious um, hymn of praise that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible, actually. And so we're going to skip around a little bit. It's, with this one, the lesson is from um, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, and then 15 to 19a. I have no idea why we skip all that other. But anyway, here's where we are. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He's, Paul's given you a thousand reasons right there to be satisfied in the goodness of God. And it's because he blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So if you someday can't find it in you to, to praise God, then the best thing I can ever encourage you to do is to read aloud Ephesians 1, and then he goes on from there to the second part of our passage. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what's the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Paul was a guy who knew how to praise God. In most of his letters, somewhere along the way, Paul is doing theology, and then suddenly he goes from theology, which is knowledge about God, to doxology, which is the praise of God. He does it consistently over and over and over throughout the Bible. And here he, he kind of begins 
his letter to the Ephesians with that. And he apparently loved the church in Ephesus, and it was apparently a wonderful church. Paul thought so highly of that group of people, and they loved him in return and supported him. But but Paul wants to begin his less his his letter to them, not with a bunch of theology. It, it's theology mixed with doxology, and if you don't move from theology, the knowledge of God, to doxology, the praise of God, then you did your theology wrong. Because what you know about God, revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, then has to enliven your life and cause you to move towards praise. In Romans particularly, Paul does almost 11 solid chapters of theology. He's explaining that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's explaining to the church in Rome how it relates to Judaism. And he said, you've been grafted in. You're the wild stock that's been grafted in to the natural and and goes on and on. But he, he, he gives theology that convicts every single person on the place, on the face of the earth. And then says, yes, that's all true. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in Jesus, you've been given new life. And so he gets to the end of this, and, and he's, he's talking about the, the Jews in, vis-a-vis the church. And he says, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And Paul's done so much theology in those 11 chapters that, that he's, he's focused here and gets caught up in the idea of the mercy and the love of God towards sinners. And, and so he goes from that thing God has consigned all to disobedience that he had mercy on all and then there's a segue without any precedent he says oh the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor who has given him a a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever So all that Paul said, all the stuff about sin and death and all that kind of stuff, he gets to the end of that, and mercy, I believe, becomes the trigger for that bit of praise there that ends the 11th chapter. It's a powerful thing. And the knowledge of God, and you can see him in all things, which is the first part of Paul's argument in Romans 1, has to do with you can know certain things about him by observing his creation. And so we have multiple ways in which we can know about God. And and all those should lead us to the praise and worship of God as well. And so it's a, a, a powerful thing if we use that tool correctly, if we spend our time contemplating his goodness and being satisfied in that goodness. And then we move from that into the gospel lesson, which which to me is one of the most difficult things because it's Matthew 2, 13 to 23, and it's the story of after the birth, after the wise men have come, then the Lord speaks 
appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Remember, the wise men had basically lied to Herod They were supposed to come back and tell him what they had found, and then they didn't come back because the Lord warned them not to go back. They warned them of Herod's murderous intentions. It was not to come give worship to the new king of the Jews. He saw it as a threat to his kingdom. So Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. So here... Jeremiah sees the matriarch, Rachel, weeping for her children. And and it's not over her children as in the sense of, of Benjamin and Joseph. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is, is their children's children. She's the matriarch of the clan. And she's weeping for her children. And it's a significant point in Judaism. This is read um, during several festivals. They read that passage for fasting because what they're looking for is is that there's they're still weeping over not really having the land because there's no temple in the land, and so they don't really possess it in the way that God ever promised them that that would be the place where worship happened. Now remember that Rachel died in Bethlehem the place where Jesus was born and the redemption that Rachel must have felt in that moment because remember she died in childbirth giving birth to her son Benjamin and named him Benoni which has to do with the pain that she experienced and and knew she was dying and then the reason he's called Benjamin is because that's what his father Jacob called him so Rachel is in uh, Ramah in Bethlehem, the city of David, because they buried her along the side of the road, essentially, and put a marker over her grave because they were continuing to move on. And so Rachel, however, is there in Ramah in Bethlehem, crying out for the, for the salvation of her children. And here they go to Bethlehem. Herod sends troops there to kill those children, the children of Rachel, in the place where Jesus was born, where her prayer was ultimately answered in the birth of Christ. And now immediately thereafter, there's great weeping from Rachel. 
And then Herod died, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who seek the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, the son of Herod, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee." Now the gospel proper can begin from there because that's when and where Jesus calls the first disciples and does his first miracles in Cana of Galilee. And so there's a, there's a move that God has had to protect his children or his child, but at the expense of those children. We can ask, where was God and where is God's goodness to be seen in a situation like that? And Jesus is the hope of all. And none of us get out of here alive. So we praise him even in these times of pain. And we know that God weeps with us over the frustration of sin in the world. But it's the world we've chosen, not the world that God chose. And so we live in that world, but we've been redeemed by the blood of his son to know that what we believe, which is this isn't the way things should be, we know that there is another world, the world for which we're longing, the world of which we believe should be, actually will be because of Jesus. And so that's the blessed hope to which he's called us. And Christmas is that season of hope that new things are on the horizon, better things are on the horizon, and that is our hope this day and always. Thank you again. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I look forward to being with you again next week or actually a couple of days from now on um, Epiphany. And so we're going to have a, a message about Epiphany, which has to do with that star that appeared just recently in our skies. Look forward to being with you next week. I hope you have a great several days in worship of the living God.